Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. You're listening to The Times. Did you read with Tim Montgomery? Who was elected Samantha Cameron and what right does she have to help to decide the nation's politics? You have to be outwardly incredibly neutral and have to make it very clear that you don't have any views in public. Is the situation in Egypt a sign that the Arab Spring has failed? There are people who are going to be radicalised and they're going to be radicalised across the Middle East. And George Osborne has said that the Tories won't raise taxes if he is re-elected. Do you believe him? He was confident that he could do two more spending rounds of the kind he's done without raising taxes, so he thinks he can do this. Welcome to the latest edition of Did You Read? Today I'm joined by Danny Finkelstein, Alice Thompson and Roger Boys to discuss the articles that they've been writing on The Times and I hope that you've been reading. First of all, who elected Samantha Cameron? I wrote a piece um, in Monday's Times in which I talked about the influence of Samantha Cameron. And there were a lot of comments, Alice, from some of our readers saying, please spare us from another Cherie. Sam seems to be a pleasant person and no doubt supports her husband admirably. But nobody elected her. And unlike Cherie Booth or Sarah Brown, she does not have any public role earned in her own right. For someone so influential in matters of policy, she seems to be immune to the quaint notion we have in this country, parliamentary accountability. Lots of sense of people feeling it was illegitimate for Samantha Cameron to have any views and to influence her husband. Do we have another Cherie Blair on her hands or is that a complete nonsense? Dennis Thatcher is probably the role model here and that what you do is you have to be outwardly incredibly neutral and have to make it very clear that you don't have any views in public and that you are the spouse because you haven't been elected. And I think Dennis was wonderful there because he dumbed himself down so much that no one ever thought that he could be telling Margaret what to do or influencing her in any way, when I'm very sure that he did have a huge influence on her. And I think the same with Cherie Blair. When she came out and said issues in public, people felt very unnerved by it. And I think what Sam needs to do is make sure she doesn't say anything publicly 
and that she is very quiet about anything she does. And if she does have views on Syria, that's absolutely fine, but we shouldn't really know about them. Do you think there's sexism here? Do you think there's a legitimacy to Dennis Thatcher having an advisory role and people don't like wives or is it just because we're unfamiliar with men and consorts? Probably worse about men. I think we're more nervous of men dictating to their wives than women. And I think if you're going to do it in the end, I thought Hillary actually is rather a good example as well because she didn't say too much when she was in office. She gave up because it was obvious the public didn't like it. But now she's going to run for office herself. I rather like the idea that actually you wait your turn. I wouldn't mind at all if Samantha Cameron decides that she wants to become Prime Minister one day and could do it. It would be rather extraordinary in a way. And and Danny, because in my article, I sort of set out a picture of Samantha Cameron, who's someone who's quite liberal, is very supportive of, for example, the Prime Minister on gay marriage, humanitarian work overseas, such as in Syria, perhaps also some of the more female-friendly policies of the government. Do you kind of buy the idea that she has influence in those areas? And do you think it's legitimate? Or what's your view? Yeah, I do buy that idea. I thought it was very convincing account, Tim. Um, I think that she is definitely influential, but not in a way that um, you might sort of think was improper. It's just that if you're a partnership, naturally, the part of the views of one person is going to affect the tone of, I suppose, the family's ethos of which David, uh, you know, will uh, will will pick up and play a role. You know, I, I I think Dennis Thatcher actually was very influential. I'm quite interested in Charles Moore's first volume. I really uh, took to Margaret Thatcher from it in terms of uh, as a leader and and took against Dennis quite strongly. Um, partly because I thought he gave bad advice on on Africa, for example, based on his own experience and had rather unpleasant opinions, uh, which were quite influential. On her, and I didn't think that was very good. The, the, the best thing I can say about Samantha Cameron is, uh, you know, I happen to agree with the influence that, uh, that, that you know that you outlined. In other words, I thought it was a good influence. But the idea that there's not going to be influence, you, you know, look, you look at any American presidential biography, and you will always find that you know the the partner had a strong influence on the president's view. It's just inevitable. And Roger, well, you've studied foreign affairs and over many years, and the role of presidents, prime ministers, wives. It's something we have always been fascinated by. Yeah, it starts with the Lady Macbeth syndrome. You know, is the wife more ambitious than mm. than the husband? And that's where the first suspicions arise. Mm. Uh, but I think the whole question of, of, you know, the wife isn't elected is a red herring, really. I mean, there are all sorts of leaders are, you know, associated and uh, advised by all sorts of people who are not elected. They're an extremely bonded couple um, due to the loss of a child. And then when your wife comes back and says the children are in a terrible state, that immediately has some kind of impact on the way you think about policy. Who, who would want a prime minister that didn't listen to their own partner? <clears throat> in other words, what sort of person is it who has a partnership, has a marriage, and doesn't listen to their partner? You know, I'm sure that Stalin didn't listen to Mrs. Stalin's view on the exchange rate mechanism of the European monetary system. But I doesn't <laughs> exactly. You know, um, it was uh, it, it was a real moment we could call that. <laughs> so Putin wasn't particularly nice, was he, to his wife? Exactly. I mean, I, I don't think it's a I, I don't think it's an admirable characteristic uh, to live with someone and not be interested in their opinion. One of the, the most conspiratorial prime ministers, probably Edward Heath, who of course had no partner to bounce of any kind to bounce things off. And he, he lived, I think, in a kind of world of his own paranoia. 
Because Alice Thompson, one of the criticisms that sometimes is made of David Cameron is that he doesn't put in the hours to get on top of ministerial and other briefs. But perhaps the counter-argument is, is that the fact that he is so rooted in family life that he spends time at lunchtime up in the Downing Street flat with Samantha and the family, that you know, he doesn't work all hours, is perhaps he's a more rounded, in-touch prime minister. Grounded is the word that Downing Street were using. With Samantha, she's very grounded and she is very calm. And there is an element of, if you are at the school gates, you do pick up different stories. You work out what people are saying. And it is true that in the Westminster bubble, you really don't understand some of the issues and how seriously people are taking them and what filters through and what doesn't. I think she's probably very good at that. And she knows what mothers are going to worry about and what they're not worrying about. And she will influence him in that way. And I think that's probably quite important for him. And I think actually with Nick Clegg, although we ridicule him for wanting to take his children to school, there are moments, you don't want to do it the whole time, but there are moments when it is quite good to get out there and work out what people are saying and how they feel and what's going on. There was a specific thing in your your piece where you talked about the fact that she listened to BBC Radio 6 rather than... Six music rather than um, Radio 4. And I think that is really, really important because most politicians massively overestimate how much attention people are paying to them. And for her simultaneously to pay the attention that obviously one partner will play of another in the, uh, domestically and at the same time pay very little attention politically, that's a good combination for him, uh, that she would explain to him what people are not listening to. And that, I hope, would keep him focused on the things that matter to people. And Roger, boys, the substance of the piece, um, the, the news in the piece was the idea that not only had she lobbied for humanitarian aid for Syria, but that she was in favour, although did not campaign for it, in favour of potentially arming the rebels in Syria. In terms of the policy, it does seem, though, that Britain is backing off from that. It does seem that way, doesn't it? I, I think they've been listening to advice, not just from wise, but from the military, um, from the military, and the military are very nervous and tense about it. They they can see things crumbling extremely fast. Plus, there's a there's a subsidiary argument, which is other people are already supplying these weapons, um, Saudi Arabia and so on. So why should Britain expose itself in this way? And are they supplying the kind of arms and of a, and technology that actually the Syrian rebels need? There is no need for the kind of Western hardware, that, that that wouldn't make us extra difference? Well, it's all a question of definition. If we want to shoot down um, Syrian army, uh, Syrian air force planes attacking civilians in cities, then they should get anti-aircraft weapons, and that's what they're getting already. Also from The Times. Join me, Andy Zaltzman, for the greatest test. The best comedy quiz panel live show about the ashes in England this summer. Probably guaranteed. Tickets at thetimes.co.uk slash greatest test. Well, that seems a good moment to move on to the second topic. And we'll stay with you, Roger. I think you wrote one of the most depressing pieces I have read for quite some time in The Times um, last week. And you talked about how Egypt might spark terrorism across the globe and that the, the, the decline, the defeat of democracy, as some people see it in Egypt, was exactly what al-Qaeda needs to recruit a new generation of jihadists. Do you want to tell us a little bit, for those who didn't read the article, why you made that case? I've actually written more depressing articles than that. Uh, Two things are happening. One is that society is atomizing in the Middle East, and the other is that they're polarizing, two separate developments, really. 
And now you have a situation where this President Morsi, former President Morsi, is under arrest. All sorts of trials are going to go on. And uh, in a situation where they haven't even really made peace with Hosni Mubarak, the dictator they overthrew two years ago. And you're getting then this very strange, formerly highly disciplined body, the Muslim Brotherhood, beginning to break into different factions. Uh, One faction says... Uh, We should never have taken power in the first place. That wasn't what we're up to. We're for pan-Islamic change. And another, of course, blames the army and an American conspiracy, uh, an American-Jewish conspiracy. And a third is utterly confused. And a combination... And from all these three factions, there are people who are going to be radicalized. And they're going to be radicalized across the Middle East. There are Muslim Brotherhood people in uh, Jordan, there are Muslim Brotherhood people in Saudi Arabia even. There are all sorts of places where people can put on suicide vests and blow themselves up. And since we have so many people coming from Europe to join what they call a... Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. We had in Syria, then this people from, from Birmingham or from Barnstable, for all I know, and who are then coming back with some kind of battle experience and some kind of passion and lots of adrenaline. This is going to come and lap at our shores as well. And is there anything we can do to insulate ourselves from this, or are we already too implicated through the US's funding of the Egyptian army and... Our, or our failure to help the rebels of Syria. Is there almost whatever we do, we can't isolate ourselves from the consequences of this? I don't think we can. I think that's what you meant by the depressing part of the article. It's, it is an American call. It's for the Americans to... The Americans are the ones with the influence over the army. It's, it's now for America, and in fact they're there at the moment, uh, trying to mediate between the two, the two very polarised segments. Daniel Finkelstein, I don't think you're quite as depressed as Ro- or gloomy about the situation as Roger. No, but I'm a little less gloomy going forward. Uh, if, if you ask yourself the question, why did the IRA decide to give up arms? Um, the answer was because the people who ran it uh, began, had families and they, re- they wanted to retire from violent crime. Uh, and <clears throat> that's because uh, the IRA's rise coincided with a youth bulge in Ireland, Northern Ireland. In fact, in Britain, it coincided with the 1968 um, youth bulge in a lot of Western countries, which produced a lot of disruption. And then it passed, and those people wanted to do things like run the education system of Northern Ireland, which is what Martin McGuinness does now instead of running the IRA. Uh, and <clears throat> in Egypt has reached what well, it probably did actually more like in 2005. The revolution started then and sort of is now burning. It is a youth bulge phenomenon. Now, if you think it's an ideological phenomenon um, or fundamentally a religious phenomenon and that these countries are incapable, really, of stable liberal democracies, you are entitled to Roger's 
um, to, to taking Roger's description, correct description, and then being pessimistic on the basis of it. My view is I think there is reason to believe, and you know, it, the interesting country to watch in this respect is Tunisia, uh, that, the, that these youth bulges, as they turn into demographic dividends, because those people who are young then become the workforce in proportion to everybody else and are creating uh, jobs and engaging in jobs and having families, that the, that, 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 that the Middle East will become ripe for liberal democracy of the kind we probably hoped for too early. So that's, I'm not panglossian about it. Um, uh, I think there are lots of reasons to be worried about it. But there are, re- you know, if you do think that the Egyptian revolution was fundamentally not really about a new rising middle class, uh, as we kind of thought it was, and not really about social media, as everyone said it was, but was just basically the result of a youth bulge, and that that's causing a second wave of disruption. They can't get a stable government. That very pessimistic sort of catastrophe is in itself, that sort of incoherence is in itself a source of optimism in the medium term. Danny's analysis is actually more pessimistic than Roger's because I think if you look at Northern Ireland, I think that is partly what happened and I had to report on that quite a lot. And there was a sense that in the end people became exhausted and tired. And in the same way in the Lebanon, when I went there, you had that same feeling at the end that people had just had enough and they were completely exhausted. But that takes a very long time for people to have had enough. And I spent a lot of time also in the refugee camps and you find that people really can cope with war for an extremely long time and for upheaval. And it takes at least a generation for people to think I've had enough. So... Danny's is almost more pessimistic to me because I'm thinking actually that could be decades and decades before they realise it. Those people are going to have to be late middle age. And I think what's difficult for people in Britain now is I think that, you know, the Arab Spring, they were incredibly sort of optimistic at the beginning because they knew who the goodies and baddies were. So at the beginning, everyone felt they knew who was who and which side they could be on. I think what you find now, and going back to the school gates, when you talk to mothers now, people are so bewildered by who the goodies and baddies are now in Egypt or in Syria that they've almost given up on the whole issue. You're not wrong to think that uh, my analysis suggests it'll take time. Uh, And and so it is not pure optimism. And also it does arise out of, you know, I think think Roger and I do share this analysis, and you do too, it seems, that um, the analysis that it was kind of the liberal democratic rising middle class against the autocracy... You know, it was just wrong. That wasn't what happened in those countries. Um, what I'm sort of against is the idea that what this proves is these these areas cannot be democracies, uh, and we're not going to see democracies in these countries ever because they don't have the sort of institutional or uh, political will to have them. And I'm a bit more optimistic than that because I think that the, the, the particular circumstances that created this, they will, they are passing. You know, in, in Egypt, they have passed the peak uh, of of um, demographic problem, which causes civil unrest. You know, everywhere, China, the Chinese Cultural Revolution, the French Revolution. Um, the 1968 riots, almost everything you can think of really is caused we, by this. We must hope is also we're perhaps past the worst of the economic mess that the world has been through recently as well. If you look at as basic as oil prices and bread prices, all of the economies of the world have been under huge pressure for a number of years. And these economies on the edge have been under more pressure. One of the distinctions between Northern Ireland and Egypt, one of the many distinctions, is that it's we do have the trappings of a democracy, but of course we don't have Democrats. The result is that there is no proper culture of governance, uh, and now what we're going to, what we need, and what what um, Morsi failed to provide is um, uh, the ability to legitimise some kind of sacrifice. In order to get IMF loans, he had to reduce fuel subsidies, and he's not been capable, or in fact, he doesn't even have, didn't even have the language to express what this would entail and to persuade the people. Um, he just expressed enough to worry the army. 
and the army has been plotting this coup for a long time. So the third and final topic we are discussing today is the last week's announcement by George Osborne that if the Conservatives return to office, they won't increase taxes. Now, on the face of this, that sounds like a winning pledge. But uh, Daniel Finkelstein, Geoffrey Howe promised not to double VAT in the 1979 general election, and they increased VAT when he was in power from 8% to 15%, not quite a doubling, but very nearly. Norman Lamont fought the 1992 election on the idea that if Labour was elected, there would be a tax bombshell, but then Norman Lamont raised VAT uh, very considerably. And even George Osborne, before the last election, said he had no plans to increase VAT and then increase VAT. You could forgive the electorate for treating a Tory tax promise with some suspicion. Well, I think one of the reasons is that <clears throat> there's always a distinction between what they do and what they said. So they, they, they're, they're strictly consistent. In other words, Geoffrey Howe didn't double uh, VAT. George Osborne had no plans to increase VAT. In other words, and, and often, poli- and o- exactly, now, often yeah. politicians do that. And they think the electorate's going to make that distinction with them, and they don't. So what happened to John Major's uh, campaign in 1992 is... Uh, it was true. Labour probably would have introduced a tax bombshell. Uh, but the government failed to accept that what it was implying to the electorate is they wouldn't increase taxes themselves. Uh, and because they hadn't actually said it, they thought the electorate would make that distinction with them. So I think the big danger for George Osborne is he has, in fact, not actually said, as a typical example, I'm not going to increase taxes. Uh, what he said is the deficit plans that we have till 2018 don't require us to uh, increase taxes. I can do it without increasing taxes. Um, and I I think that he might imagine uh, that the electorate would then accept uh, that he increased taxes for another reason or uh, at a different time. Uh, but in fact, he has made the pledge that you suggest. Right? And he, he may not think he has, but he has. And the electorate would punish him then if he doesn't um, see through on it. So if he's smart, he'll realise that that is exactly the nature of the pledge and he'll he'll see that through. It will be very hard to see through because uh, two more years of um, cuts at the levels that we've had, uh, particularly if you protect certain areas, will be hard to deliver it. But I I know I've spoken to him about it um, when we did our editorial on the subject and um, he was confident that he could do two more uh, spending rounds of the kind he's done without raising taxes. So he thinks he can do this. What we essentially could be getting to the electorate being framed as is the Tories as the party of axes cutting even harder and faster than they've cut so far and um, the Labour Party the party of taxes putting taxes up for example on high value properties to try and uh, cut the deficit. Is this a winning argument for either of the parties or are voters going to be very cynical about all of these promises? Well, I think George Osman's rather old-fashioned about it because I think that cutting taxes isn't actually what people are interested in now and I don't think they do believe that it can happen. What they really want is the cutting benefits and actually that's what's been proving the vote winner recently and people have now got an appetite actually for cuts and they're becoming more and more into the idea of cutting back on the welfare system or cutting back in various different areas and on this sense that there's been too much waste. And that's what's popular. They don't think we're going to get tax cuts, but they do now want cuts in other areas. And I think the benefits issue has been really interesting because it's taken a lot of time to take hold. But people really, when they're polling them, it really does show that people don't like you know, other people getting too many benefits. They don't like other people getting too much rather than 
them getting these you, extra your, your tax cuts. Your view is that welfare is going to be a much bigger I issue at the election. Welfare will be a bigger than issue than taxes. Spread. Actually, I think that's going to be a major issue, and I think that's what the Tories can define themselves on. But the, the, the key thing is that it's not going to be an election about cutting taxes. What it is going to be an election is in which he's trying to make the Labour Party and Liberal Democrats look like they're going to raise taxes. And I think he may never, he may not succeed because people don't believe politicians in persuading people that he will not increase taxes. But he may succeed in persuading people that the Labour and the Liberal Democrats will put up taxes more. After a general election, he, he will be in a position where, having run that campaign, he will not be able to raise taxes. Providing that he understands the discipline he says himself, mm. um, then clearly this is a sensible position to take politically. Uh, providing he understands that no loyally positions afterwards will wash with anyone. So I think maybe we should get Sam Cameron to say what she thinks on this. <laughs> she might be the final arbiter. She might be the arbiter. Danny, Alice, Roger, thank you very much for being my guests today. Thank you, Alex Jakes, my producer. And thank you most of all for you for listening. All of the articles that we've been discussing today can be read on the Comment Central blog, which you can find at thetimes.co.uk slash Comment Central. And those articles are available for all Times subscribers.